Turn in your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, that is, the third chapter. We're going to be looking specifically today at verses 9 through 14. We'll read everything uh, from verse 1, however, because it's the narrative of Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a... uh, He was a scribe, Uh, he was a Pharisee, he was uh, one who was a member of the Sanhedrin, and uh, he had questions for Jesus, and so he encounters Jesus in the night. And uh, one of the reasons I love this passage is because uh, it really messes with people. Um, My own grandfather was converted in part through this passage, he's in Bible study, and they're talking about this. And uh, he would have had some personal similarities to Jesus. He was serving as an elder in a church. Uh, he was on a city council. Uh, he was a businessman. And uh, he, he was really angry that uh, these things would be true. And uh, he described uh, once his uh, particular frustration. They studied this passage, and then he was getting ready to go to church, and he was listening to Billy Graham on the radio as he was shaving. And uh, Billy Graham spoke of the confidence of knowing with certainty that he had eternal life. And that just got under my grandfather's skin. How can he say that? But you see, my grandfather needed to have his eyes opened, and they would be in just the subsequent weeks. Uh, The other place I've seen this passage uh, used powerfully, the Lord was actually the last time I heard it preached in person, and it wasn't in English. Uh, Zach and I were in South Sudan, and we were in a little village church, and uh, this young preacher named Zechariah, who uh, since that time has actually been ordained, was uh, preaching, and I was uh, sitting on the platform in the sand behind him, and he was preaching in Dinka, and I didn't have a clue what he was saying other than I knew what the passage was, and as he preached, he would raise his hand to show that Jesus Jesus was lifted up. And of course, he'd stretch out his hands and he'd be able to see that he's speaking of Jesus being on the cross. And he was calling people to faith and to repentance. And then as uh, the people responded in prayer afterwards, uh, many sick people came forward to have their uh, needs met in prayer. And mothers would bring their sick little children. And in the midst of all of that, as I've described for you before, there was one little old lady who came up the center aisle and she got down on her knees in the dust and literally on her knees, crawled her way through the mass of people who were there for prayer, and she stopped everything in the service to speak directly to the preacher, and she said, you told me I've got to come confess my sins and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I'm here to do it. And that day she placed her faith and her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So children, that's one of the pictures you can draw of uh, our brother Zechariah uh, there in South Sudan preaching with his hand outstretched like that, pointing to the raised up Jesus and uh, with his hands spread wide open. Uh, but the point is this, God loves to use this passage. And uh, even if he doesn't use it in your heart and life today, let me tell you, I'm here to believe it myself. So we're going to turn to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 14. Give attention to the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the servant serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word, which we pray that he'll write on our hearts today and forever. And uh, let's pray that he would do that now. Lord, we pray that you would indeed uh, take these truths and that you would show us not simply a historical story, but that you would show us the power of your word and your spirit in our own hearts and lives as we would look to the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. What was the first thing that you saw when you were born? You don't remember, do you? It's probably God's grace that we don't remember, but it must have been something amazing compared to what you had seen before. And maybe we got just a little taste of it this week with the first photos from the uh, James Webb uh, telescope being sent back, the the space telescope, which showed pictures of uh, sort of infant stars and uh, galaxies, the clearest pictures of Jupiter that have ever been seen. Uh, These things have never been seen in this kind of way by humans before, because we didn't have the capacity. We didn't have the telescope. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Unless there is something that changes within you to turn the lights on and to open your eyes. You can't have eternal life. And so as we looked at this passage last week, we saw that we should not marvel that Jesus would say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But when we're born again, when the, when the eyes of our spiritual telescope are, are opened, as it were, what is it that happens next? Well, that's where Jesus presses us in this second part of his conversation with Nicodemus. But poor Nicodemus isn't quite there yet, as we see in verse 9. Nicodemus hears this stuff about the new birth, that he's got to be born again. He's still mulling over these things. And so he asks this question, how can these things be? And we want to follow Jesus' line of thinking here as he answers Nicodemus. How can these things be? What do these things mean? What has to happen when there is a change of heart? What, what are the results? Well, as we answer this question, how can these things be? We're going to see several answers that Jesus gives. He says, these things must be revealed to you, first of all, from above. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Look at how Jesus responds to Nicodemus. First of all, in verse 10, he says to him, are you the teacher in Israel? And notice here, it's the the definite article, not just a teacher in Israel, but are you the teacher in Israel and you don't understand this? 
Now, if you're irritated like I am oftentimes by people from Ohio and from Ohio State, you'll know that one of the things they always boast about is the fact that they are the Ohio State University. Definite article on the front, right? And so Nicodemus was that sort of guy. He's clearly not just a teacher in Israel. He was one of the senior teachers in Israel. Perhaps the best known to have this kind of title. And so Jesus is pressing in on him. Here he is. He's in his darkness. And one of the things this reveals to us is that it's very often hard for the wealthiest and the smartest and the people who are of highest position to believe in Jesus. Why is that? It's because they want to be self-sufficient and they recognize that if their world order sort of gets overturned, that they stand to lose the most because they're sort of at the top of the societal heap. And Jesus comes to Nicodemus and he's told him, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom. And here he is, he's this, this fellow who has been ostensibly teaching people in Israel how to get into the kingdom year after year after year after year. And now Jesus is telling him, you don't see it. And you don't get it. And so Jesus, now responding to this one who has come and, and has used the plural, uh, we know that no one can do these signs. Nicodemus has said back in chapter 2. So in verse 11, Jesus responds uh, uh, here and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Uh, D.A. Carson says that Jesus is sardonically aping the plural of Nicodemus. That is, he's saying, you know, those of you who don't know anything think you know something about me, so you come saying we. Jesus says we, those of us who actually do know the truth, we know some things truly as well that you need to understand because here's poor Nicodemus in the dark. He had the scriptures and Jesus is is probing him saying, how do you as the teacher of Israel not know these things? It's kind of like Nicodemus had the Old Testament scriptures. He basically had the Westminster Confession of Faith. He had taught these things line by line, week by week. He had articulated things that were true, but he didn't have true spiritual understanding. And so Jesus is showing him that these things must be revealed from above, spiritually. They must be revealed from above. And Leon Morris says, in, <clears throat> in its own way, this chapter does away with the works of the law every bit as thoroughly as anything in Paul. When Jesus comes to Nicodemus, he's not coming saying it's poor little children who need to be born again to come into the kingdom. It, it's not simply wicked uh, women like the woman at the well that we'll meet in John chapter 4 who need to come to Jesus. It is those who have trusted in their own knowledge. It is those who think they have all of their I's dotted and their T's crossed who need to be born again or they will not see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says here, uh, he's bearing witness. Uh, He doesn't, of course, receive it. That is, Nicodemus doesn't receive it. But he says uh, in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's, he's described, uh, scholars believe uh, what it's speaking of here is he's described the new birth as something that has to happen on earth, something that has to happen in the heart of a person. 
And if Nicodemus doesn't even believe this about the kind of change of heart that's necessary on this earth, how on earth is he going to believe the things that Jesus speaks of in the heavenly realm? We can try to describe to someone the the glorious pictures taken in outer space this week, but if they haven't seen it, it really doesn't do that much good. And here's Nicodemus. He can't see because there are still spiritual blinders on him. So the first thing that we need to know if we're going to have Nicodemus's question answered, how can these things be? We need to know that they have to be revealed to you from above regardless of your position or of your role or of the level of knowledge that you have or the wealth that you possess or the good that you're capable of doing. They've got to be received and revealed from above. The second thing we see in verse 13, as Jesus gives this uh, more texture, more fullness, we see that they must be revealed in full from heaven by Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Verse 13 says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, where are you going to get this knowledge from heaven? Well, there's no one who has been able to ascend to heaven. The only one who has been there is one who has come from heaven. And this is Jesus, God in the flesh, the Word incarnate, which we looked at in chapter 1. And this, of course, is pushing back against the desire of every human heart to try to elevate his or herself to be God, to ascend to the heavenly places. That word ascend is the same basic concept that's there in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 and following, which uh, describes the, the desire of the king of Babylon to raise himself up to heaven. Sometimes this is uh, used, uh, it's believed by some, to describe uh, Satan's own desire as he elevated himself. And Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is the boast. This is the desire of the human heart. Of course, the problem with it is that it never works and it always crushes other people under its weight as well. When I was preaching through Isaiah, you may remember that uh, when we considered this passage, we see a great illustration of this in Dr. Seuss's little book, Yertle the Turtle, who uh, wanted to be king of Salamasand, uh, that that pond. And uh, he saw the moon in the heavens and he wanted to be higher than the moon and so what did he do he starts recruiting all of the other turtles to sit underneath him so that he can be elevated until finally he ends up coming crashing down because of the the weight that it puts on all the other turtles underneath him and it's really what happens when any of us try to elevate ourselves to ascend on high to give our Uh, ourselves the place of spiritual preeminence to try to elevate ourselves as the ones who can see the kingdom of God on our own power. Well, Jesus is saying this is only a revelation that's going to come if God gives it to you. And what is it that Nicodemus should have known from the Old Testament? God was going to rend the heavens and he was going to come down himself. 
All of the covenants, all of the promises that God made in the Old Testament, they're all leading to one thing, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The one who is the Lord saves. The one who has come into the world so that we might have eternal life. Nicodemus should not have been surprised by this, that it would require the suspension of normal cause and effect, that it would take a miracle if people would be able to see the kingdom of God. Because if you know the Old Testament, you know it's a story of constant failure on the part of human beings. We never can see the kingdom if it's up to us. But God's promise repeatedly is that he would reveal his kingdom through his king, God himself, coming to take the throne of David. And so Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and teaching us here that these things that Nicodemus couldn't understand must be revealed from heaven through Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. But this leads us to more than that Jesus uh, reveals for us. He reveals for us that the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross. And you see this in verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the the Son of Man has come to reveal God's salvation and to give eternal life. But how did this happen? Well, it was only going to happen as the Son of Man is lifted up. And he shares this interesting story for us from the Old Testament to illustrate this fact. You'll read about this in Numbers chapter 21. The people of God were in the wilderness and they had been receiving miraculous food from heaven every day. Year after year after year. And you know what they did? They said, we're tired of this miracle. We can't stand this loathsome bread. They wanted better things than what God had to provide. And so the Lord sent his judgment upon them. He sent serpents into their midst. Fiery serpents, that is, venomous snakes. These poisonous vipers. And I don't know about you, everybody's kind of got their own worst nightmare. Uh, for some of you, it's, it's spiders. For others of you, it's falling free fall through space. Uh, for, for some, it's being caught naked public speaking. You know, whatever your nightmare is, I can tell you that mine that causes me to wake up in a cold sweat is being in a pit of snakes. Children, you can draw this. I mean, you don't have to draw me there in the pit. That, that'd be sort of disturbing. But right, I mean, this is really bad news. We, we know snakes are... Are, they represent the evil one, and when they're venomous, they bite, and they sting, and they hurt, and they bring death. And the people of God in the wilderness were suffering from these bites. They were losing strength. They were in great pain as those poisons uh, worked their way into their blood and then to various critical organs, causing them to shut down. And you can imagine the angst that the people felt as they saw their own lives slipping away before their very eyes. This is the sort of feeling that every person has when he or she is dying, an awareness that life here on this earth is coming to an end. And we're all doomed to death at one time or another if the Lord tarries. 
well, these people were dying because of their sin. And there's a very real sense here in which in the story, the snakes represent our sin. We're we're bitten. Uh, We have this poison in our bodies and in our blood that is killing us. And it leads to separation from with God. And so what was it that Moses was supposed to do? Well, he was supposed to take, and we don't know exactly why, but a bronze serpent. You think about how this happened. I mean, I, I wonder to myself, how long did this take? And for the people who were, were dying, what, what were they thinking as all of this is going on? But in any event, he makes this bronze serpent, which is lifted up on a pole. And what the people were instructed to do was to look at that bronze serpent and believe in the Lord so that they might be spared. And the Lord worked another miracle that day. He didn't just send manna that morning, but he also gave life as people would look at that serpent up on the pole and they would be spared. And in this case, they were given physical life as they would look by faith and their lives were preserved. And that snake that was lifted up, it was not the source of salvation itself. It only represented the source. And this is why centuries later, King Hezekiah had to destroy that serpent because people were treating it superstitiously. They were beginning to trust in that rather than the God that was to be understood through that snake that was lifted up there in the wilderness. And John here records Jesus' words saying, Jesus himself is saying to Nicodemus, just as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How are these things possible? These things, this eternal life is only possible if Jesus Christ is lifted up on the cross. And as we look at the Gospel of John, whenever this term is used, lifted up, it's speaking of Jesus being lifted up in his suffering. But it's also true that this language reverberates through the Old Testament. You remember what, John, uh, what the prophet Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6? He saw the Lord high and lifted up on the throne. And yet in Isaiah 52, the prophet also prophesied that uh, the suffering servant would be lifted up. And then he goes on to describe his sufferings. Where is it? that we see Jesus being lifted up. Well, he's lifted up at the cross. And the thing that is so fascinating and so mind-boggling to us here is that Jesus' glory is most displayed in his being lifted up there upon the cross. The love of God is shown to sinners like you and me through Jesus making his revelation known through his proclamation and then through his act of grace there upon the cross where he made himself a substitute. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How can these things be? How can a person be born again? How can a person have eternal life? Well, it can only come through the suffering of another. And Tim Keller points this out very helpfully. He says, you know, when when you were born into this world for the first time, it came about through suffering. But it wasn't your suffering. Because what did you do when you were born? How did you help? 
Now, let me tell you, you were not doing the backstroke down the birth canal. You were not aiding the process in any way. But there was somebody who was suffering very deeply on your behalf. And especially on your birthday, you ought to make sure you give her a call and say thank you. Jesus is the one who had to suffer so that we might be born again. And the only way for this kind of life to have come into the world was for the Son of Man to be lifted up so that we might have life. And John makes this connection then in John chapter 16. You can turn in your Bibles there if you want. But Jesus, speaking in John chapter 16, just before he he dies, he says this in uh, verse 20 of chapter 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your joy, uh, your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And we've looked at that word hour in the past. Her hour has come, speaking of, uh, uh, alluding to Jesus' hour of his suffering. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It is through the suffering of Jesus as he is lifted up on the cross that it can be possible for people to be born again. Now again, what can you do to be born again? Well, nothing. But we are instructed how we can have eternal life. And that is in the kind of response that is called for to these things. Nicodemus wants to know how can these things be? And Jesus has just said so. And so then we're left with the question, well, what should we do? What do we do at this point in time? And this is where we see Jesus' answer in verse 15. We are called to faith in him. He says that this has happened. Jesus would be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. How can these things be? How is it that we can see the kingdom and have eternal life? It is as we place our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus who was lifted up there upon the cross so that we might have life through his death. You've got to look to him. Those people who were in the wilderness, they were called to look. And again, as Keller points out here, they were were called to look when they could do nothing else. No strength left. And what are we called to do in that looking? We're called to repent not only of our sin, but we're called to repent of everything that we've tried to do to achieve repentance even on our own. We're called to uh, turn from our wickedness of even thinking that we can do something that contributes to our salvation. We're called to simply look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe We talked about this in our class here in the first hour. We're called to receive and to rest upon Christ alone for salvation. There's nothing else that you and I can do. And what good news that is. Charles Spurgeon was converted through the preaching of uh, Isaiah chapter 45. And uh, in that chapter, uh, we are called to 
Turn to me and be saved by God, all the ends of the earth. And if you know the story of his conversion, it was a a simple layman who had to preach because there was snow that had fallen such that the preacher couldn't even make it to the chapel that day. And he simply called people who were there in his hearing, including Spurgeon, to look to the Lord Jesus. And Spurgeon would later say he was looking for somebody to, to give him any one of 50 things that he could do in order to attain his salvation. He would have been willing to do anything. But it was in that moment that he, like Nicodemus of old, had to come to understand there's, there's nothing you can do except you just look up to Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus calls you to do today as well. To acknowledge your sin, you acknowledge your helplessness, you acknowledge the, the poisonous sin that is in your blood that is killing you and that there is nothing in your power that can deliver you. But you simply look to Jesus, lift it up. And what is it you will have? Look again at verse 14, 15. You will have eternal life. You will step into the kingdom this day. You will taste of the glories of that kingdom this day. You will experience things that are promised to us and that are delivered in part from the age to come today as you look to the Lord Jesus. And when our hearts are opened, this is precisely what happens. When, when our hearts are opened, we don't start taking selfies. Can you imagine the, the blasphemy that it would be if we were to come to the Lord's Supper and we had people who are holding the, the bread and the cup in their hand and they're taking a selfie, right? Look at me. Look at the change of heart I have. We've sent this telescope out into space. Is, is NASA releasing pictures of selfies of this thing? No. When our eyes are opened, what is it that we behold? Whatever is so splendorous and beautiful and glorious and majestic that we have never seen before. That's what faith does. Faith simply knows that God has changed something so that my eyes are opened and I look at Jesus Christ who suffered so that my sin might be taken away and I believe in him and I taste of the world and of the life that is to come that is already mine in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you, like Nicodemus of old, are called to faith and to repentance and you know, why we know this story, or at least why we presume we know this story, it's because Nicodemus had to tell John what happened this day. And you know, Nicodemus here in recounting this story, apparently to John, he doesn't even tell us about his own response. He simply saw the glory of Jesus. And John tells us later about what Nicodemus did. He saw Jesus when he was crucified, when he'd been shamed and humbled. And when the rest of the world saw him as a a defeated prophet, who'd been brought to nothing. You know what Nicodemus did? Knowing these promises and having seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he brought 75 pounds of myrrh uh, and of spices to bury the Lord Jesus. That was typically an amount, as we understand from scholars, that was reserved for kings. Why would Nicodemus do that? Because he had seen the kingdom. By seeing the king as he had revealed himself to Nicodemus that night. And if you've seen the king, 
then you want to give him everything that a king is worthy of. There were 75 pounds of spices that Nicodemus brought that day to honor Jesus. But even Nicodemus knew that the grave was not going to contain Jesus forever. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And today, that king is worthy of what the true king of the universe deserves from you. That is your praise and your adoration and your faith. So let's look to him and give him that praise that he is worthy of here today. We'll sing now Psalm 16, Selection C, which uh, the apostle uh, Peter spoke of and preached from on the day of Pentecost. When they had seen Jesus rise from the dead, they knew that there was life in him because the grave couldn't hold him. And they recognized that they had seen this kingdom come into existence visibly on this earth through the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death and his resurrection. And we have seen the same brothers and sisters. So let's sing to the praise of God's glory by singing Psalm 16, Selection C to him.